Chapter Nine of Rebellion by Joseph M. Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Georgia and Mason did not overpass the outward signs and boundaries of Platonism, learning to avoid not merely evil but the appearance of evil. When they met in the hundred-eyed office, they were casual. During the autumn, they took long walks together every Sunday. There had been a dry spell that year, lasting with hardly a break from the forepart of June, which baked the land and sucked out the wells and put the northern woods in danger of their lives. The broad corn-leaves withered yellow, and the husbandmen of the great valley protested that the ears were but lil nubbins, with three inches of nothing at the tips, tapering down to a point, and where'll we get our seed next spring? When the huge downpour came at last, and by its miracle saved the crop which had been given up for lost a fortnight since, Mason cursed the day, for it fell on the first day of the week and cost him, item, one walk and talk with Georgia Connor. She stood so near his eyes as to hide from his sight a billion bushels parching in the valley, though he was country-bred. To her their Sundays together brought not a joy as definite as his, but rather a sense of contentment, of relief from the precision of the other days of her week. It pleased her to wander to the big aviary, and look at the condors and cockatoos, and wonder about South America where they came from, then to stroll slowly over to the animals, and have a vague difference of opinion with him about whether a lion could whip a tiger. She thought so, because the lion was the king of beasts, but Mason didn't, because he'd read of a fight where it had been tried. Once he even grew a trifle heated, because she wouldn't listen to reason and fact and stuck to the lion, because he'd been called the king of beasts, whereas all naturalists knew the elephant and the gorilla and the rhinoceros. There she interrupted him with a laugh, and called him a boy, and too literal. Every Sunday they had this same dispute, until finally they both learned to laugh about it, and make it a joke between them, and she told him he was doing much better. They walked by the inside lake, and wondered if the wild ducks and geese on the wooded isle liked to have to stay there, and they took lunch when they got good and ready, perhaps not until two or three, or even four o'clock in the afternoon. She always went home for supper, but often she came out again afterwards, and took the car downtown to a Sunday evening ethical society, which foregathered in an old-fashioned theatre building. There was almost always some well-known speaker, whose name was often in the papers, perhaps a professor, or a radical Ohio mayor, or a labour lawyer, to address them on up-to-date topics like municipal ownership in Europe, or the Russian Revolution, or the androcentric world, which showed women had as much right to vote as men, or non-resistance, a kind of Christianity that wasn't practical. Stevens didn't like that lecture much. Jane Addams spoke once about the children that lived in her neighbourhood. He thought her talk the best of all. So did Georgia. He said to her that Jane Addams was as much of a saint as any of those old-timers that were burnt and pulled to pieces and fed to lions, and a useful kind of a saint as well, because she helped children instead of just believing in something or other. 
Georgia didn't answer his remark at the time, but nearly half an hour later, as she was bidding him good-night, she had him repeat it to her, and the next day she told him that what he had said about Miss Adams was very interesting. They had organ music at these meetings and a collection, so that he felt it was the next thing to going to church. But Georgia, in arguing out the matter with herself, concluded that there was so little religion in the services that in attending them she violated the church's law against worshipping with heretics hardly more than if she went to a political meeting. She would never go to a regular Protestant service with Mason, even if he asked her. She made up her mind firmly on that point. So perhaps it was as well he didn't ask her. Her waking memories of Jim were now much fainter and dimmer. She tried not to think of him at all. She refused to let her mother or Al speak his name or make allusion to him. At the beginning, just after his departure, Mama had harped on the subject until she thought it would drive her crazy. Over and over and over again she traversed the same ground, about his being her husband, and Christian charity, and one more trial, and the disgrace of it, and that it was the first time such a thing ever happened in the family. Finally, in self-defense, and to save herself from being upset every night when she was tired and worn out anyway, she told her mother that the next time she mentioned Jim's name she would leave the room. And she only had actually to do this three times before poor Mama succumbed, as she always did when she was met firmly. However, she still managed to say a volume in Jim's favor, with her deep sighs and her, Oh, Georgia's! But Georgia always pretended she didn't know the meaning of such signs and manifestations. Of course, especially at the beginning, her husband's face often came unbidden between her and her page, but she gathered up her will each time to banish it again, and it's surprising what a woman can do if she only makes up her mind and sticks to it. But her dreams were the trouble. Jim would enter them. She didn't know how to keep him out. And he always came, sometimes two or three nights in succession, to bring her pain. She usually appointed her Sunday rendezvous for an hour before noon at Shakespeare's statue in the park, and sailed off cheerily in her best bib and tucker to meet Mason, leaving behind her a fine trail of excuses, a complete new set each week, to explain to Mama why she couldn't go to Mass. On this particular morning she said she had a date with a girlfriend from the office. With the best intention in the world she was never on time, and always kept him waiting. She was so unalterably punctual for six days a week that the seventh day it was simply impossible. Stevens usually became slightly irritated during these few minutes, what business man wouldn't, and referred to his watch at hundred-second intervals, determined to ask her once and for all why she wasted so much time in tardiness. But when finally he distinguished her slim little figure in the Sunday throng that was streaming toward him, his impatience left not a rack behind. They started gaily northward, bantering each other in urban repartee. As they passed Grey Columbus Hospital, their mood swerved suddenly, and they talked of sickness and death and immortality. Her belief was orthodox, but it did not hold her as vividly as it held the old folk in the old days. 
had she lived nearer to the miracles of the sun going down in darkness and coming up in light or thunderstorms and young oats springing green out of black with wild mustard interspersed among them like deeds of sin of the frost coming out of the ground and the leaves dying and the trees sleeping she would perhaps have lived nearer to the miracles of bread and wine of christ sleeping that the world may wake but she lived in a place of obvious cause and effect when the sun went down the footlights came up for you if you had a ticket and man's miracle banished gods even though you might be in the flying balcony and the tenor almost a block away thunderstorms meant that it was reckless to telephone oats wheat and corn something they controlled on the board of trade the melting of the snows showed the city hall was weak on the sewer side what else could you expect of politicians the dying leaves presaged the end of the riverview season and young al's excitement over the world series living in the country puts a god in one's thoughts for man did not make the country and its changes yet they are there farmers pray for rain or its cessation according to their needs to live in the city is to diminish god and the seeming daily want of him for man built his own city of steel and steam and stone unhelped did he not god may have made the pansies but he did not make the loop his majesty is hidden from its people by their self-sufficing skill and they turn their faces from him westsiders do not pray for universal transfers never had georgia questioned her faith its extent remained as great as ever she had consciously yielded no part of her creed but its living quality was infected by the daily realism of her life as spring ice is honeycombed throughout with tiny fissures before its final sudden disappearance so she talked to stevens of her convictions but in a calm dispassionate way without emotional fervour stevens great-grandparents whenever they referred to the romanist church which was often spoke of the scarlet woman or the whore of babylon his grandparents products of a softer weaker generation stopped at adjectives papist jesuitical idolatrous his parents receded still further from the traditions of the pilgrims indeed his father being a popular horse doctor kept his mouth shut altogether on the subject and his mother seldom went beyond remarking that there was considerable superstition in the catholic service and too much form to suit her as for the son himself he could as soon have quarrelled about the rights and wrongs of the mexican war as he would about religion he wasn't especially interested in either he thought there was a lot of flim-flam for women in all religion especially in catholicism but it was an amiable weakness of the sex like corsets so he let georgia run on explaining her faith without interruption then most wretched luck befell them georgia looked up from the tips of her toes being vaguely engaged as she talked in stepping on each large pebble in the gravel path and her eyes rested squarely upon her mother mrs talbot mottled georgia blushed all progress was temporarily arrested then the older woman puffed out her chest and waddled away with all the dignity at her summons but she could not resist the parthian shot what celt can 
and she turned to throw back over her shoulder, "'Who's your girlfriend, Georgia?' Her teeth clicked, and she continued her departure. Stevens realized that there had been a contretemps of some sort, and that it was his place, as a man of the world, to laugh it off. "'Who's the old powder-pigeon?' he inquired. Mama. Oh! Feeling that candor was now thrust upon her, Georgia proceeded to explain to Stevens that she had never explained about him to her mother, for Mama couldn't possibly understand, being old-fashioned and prejudiced in some regards. "'So you've made me fib for you,' she finished. "'Aren't you ashamed?' "'Yes,' said he, in truth much gratified by her clandestineness. "'But what I don't see is—' he began, then broke off. "'Is what?' "'Is why you should be so disturbed about your mother's knowing.' "'I've told you, for the sake of peace and a quiet life.' "'But what about your husband?' he blurted it out suddenly, the word that had crucified him since his one and only visit to her home, the word which he had kept dumb between them until now. "'What about him?' doesn't he mind? He left me six months ago. You never supposed I would take a man's bread and fool him, did you, Mason? She called him by his name for the first time. I didn't know, he muttered. I've been to hell and back thinking of it. How did you suppose it would come out? she asked, fascinated objectively by the drama of her life. I felt we were playing beanbag with dynamite and we ought to quit, made up my mind, while I was waiting for you this morning, to tell you this must be the last time, because we were drifting straight into... He paused. Into what? There was a touch of gentlest irony in her tone. Into trouble, lots of it. There was a touch of apology in his. And you didn't want trouble, lots of it? Her irony was not less. At least not on my account? I was thinking of what would be best for all of us. I was trying to do the square thing, the greatest happiness for the greatest number. There was a pause, unsympathetic. Wasn't that right? He ended with no great confidence. Why, of course, perfectly right, she assented heartily. It shows consideration. You considered the case systematically from all sides, yours and mine and my husband's, and the rest of the family's, and the rest of yours too, I suppose, didn't you? She looked extremely efficient and spoke in her business voice with a little snap to her words. She was quite unfair in taking this tack with unhappy Stevens, who, however often he thought of his duty in these twisted premises, would surely not have done it if she beckoned him away for she owned the only two hands in the world which he wanted to hold. A woman, however, prefers to be the custodian of her own morals, and it gratifies her at most no more than slightly to find that her lover had been plotting with himself to preserve her virtue. It is for the man to ask, and for her to deny, sadly but sweetly, and she doesn't care to be anticipated especially when she is self-perceptibly interested. But since you are already separated from... Yes, that makes it pleasanter all around, doesn't it? She led him on most treacherously. 
Why, of course, that's what I was saying, he blundered. Now I can ask you to... Mason, I've a frightful headache. The sun, perhaps, and I think I will go home and lie down, if you don't mind. He looked up in some amazement at the lord of day, half hidden by the haze in his November station, and it suddenly occurred to him that woman is a various and mutable proposition always. What's the matter with you, anyway? Nothing, she responded with deliberate unconvincingness. Nothing in the world but a headache. She held out her hand. Don't bother to come with me. We might be seen. Good-bye. And she was off. It was a winding gravel path, and she was lost behind a curving hedge before he started in pursuit. She quickened her pace when she heard his step behind, and it was almost a walking race before he overtook her. "'Georgia!' he exclaimed, somewhat ruffled by her unreasonableness. She neither turned her head nor answered. "'Georgia!' he repeated more loudly. Then he took her wrist and forcibly arrested her. "'Please let me go,' she requested, with supreme dignity. "'You are hurting me.' "'Not until you hear what I have to say. "'Will you marry me?' "'Marry you?' She dropped her eyes before his frowning ones. The shoulders which had been thrown so squarely back seemed to yield like her will, and drooped forward into softer lines. "'Yes,' he tightened his hold on her wrist. "'Will you?' "'I am a Catholic.' "'But isn't there some way around that? Your man of business believes there is some way around everything.' "'No. Divorce and remarriage aren't permitted to us.' Don't they ever annul a marriage? Not if it has been a marriage. A look of misery came over his face. She perceived it and went steadily on. I had a child once that died. He dropped her hand, unconsciously to himself, but she felt it as a clear signal between them. You see how little you have known me, she said softly. Poor old fellow, I'm sorry. Too bad it had to end like this. Her eyes were now swimming in tears, which she did not try to conceal. "'Don't you see, dear, that is why I kept putting off telling you things about my affairs, and why I had tried to keep it friendship, because I knew when we came as far as this we would have to stop.' "'It will never stop,' he said tensely. "'Never.' Response seemed to sweep through her suddenly, bewildering her by its unexpected strength. Perhaps not, she assented slowly, if, if we dare. Georgia, he pleaded, you know that I... Yes, in a whisper, I know. And do you care, too? She looked up, and her answer was plain for him to read. More than you will ever know, Mason, she said. Georgia, are you a devout Catholic? Does it mean all of life to you here and hereafter? No, not very devout. Nothing like mother, for instance. I have grown very careless about some things. Would you always be governed by the teaching of the church in this matter? Always? Never decide for yourself? When it came to such a big thing, she said slowly, I don't think I'd dare disobey. What are you afraid of? future punishment? 
Why, yes, partly that, she smiled. It isn't a very jolly prospect, you know. He was truly astonished. He supposed that everybody nowadays, even Catholics, had tacitly agreed to give up hell. Hell was too ridiculously unreasonable to be believed in any more. Georgia, he asked, have you ever looked much at the stars? Why, yes, once in a while. Last Sunday evening at Bismarck Garden, Al and I found the dipper. It was just as plain. Is that what you mean? Of course I don't pretend to be much of an astronomer. Some nights, he said, when it's clear, I go up on the roof and lie on my back, and, well, it's a great course in personal modesty. Some of those stars, those little points of light, are as much bigger than our whole world as an elephant is bigger than a mosquito, and live as much longer. Of course, she answered, we know that everything is bigger than people used to think, but still couldn't God have made it all just the same? Do you honestly believe, he rejoined, speaking very earnestly, intent on shaking her faith, if that were possible, that whoever, or whatever, was big enough to put the stars in the sky, is small enough to take revenge forever on a tiny little molecule like you or me? Do you honestly suppose that after you are dead, perhaps a long time dead, this mighty God will hunt for you through all the heavens, and when he has found you, you poor little atom of a dead dot, that he will torment and pester you for ever and ever, because you had once for a space no longer than the wink of an eye, acted according to the nature he gave you? If that is your God, he has put nothing in his universe as cruel as himself. She frowned in a puzzled way for a few seconds, looking at him with an odd little wide-eyed stare, then shook her head slowly. Yes, said he in answer, some day you will take your life in your own hands and use it. You're not the stuff they make nuns out of. There's too much vitality in you. How old are you? he asked suddenly. Twenty-six. Twenty-six and ready to quit? I don't believe it. You don't understand, Mason, she answered. You can't. You're not a Catholic. Catholicism is different from all other creeds. It is not just something you think and argue about, but it has you. You belong to it. It is as much a part of you as your blood and bones. There was a finality in her voice, a resignation of self, which bespoke the vast accumulated will of the church operating upon and through her. Stevens knew suddenly that she was not an individualized woman in the same sense that he was an individualized man, with the private possibility of doing what he pleased so long as he did not interfere with the private possibility of others. He realized that in certain important intimate matters, such as the one which had arisen between them, she was without power of decision, the decision having been made for her many centuries ago and he felt the awe which comes to every man when first he is confronted by the Roman Catholic Church. "'You mean there is no way out of it but death? Your husband's death?' His self-confidence seemed to have departed as if he, too, had met fate in the road. "'Yes,' she answered gently, "'that is the only way.' 
Then she smiled with some little effort, but still she smiled, for she detested gloom on her day off. "'Oh, Mason,' said she, "'why wasn't Grandpa a Swede?' He looked at her with amazement, and not without a trace of disapprobation, for her eyes were dancing. Was she actually making jokes about his misery, to say nothing of hers, if indeed she felt any? He was learning more about women every minute. Now she was practically giggling. He frowned deeper and sighed. Perhaps, perhaps everything was for the best, after all. He might as well tell her so, too no reason to make himself wretched for something she seemed to think hilariously humorous. "'Well, Georgia, I must say,' he began portentously, "'twas the voice of the husband, almost. She could hear him complain. Whereat she simply threw back her head and laughed again. He noticed, as he had often noticed, that her strong little teeth were white and regular, that her positive little nose was straight and slender, and the laughter creases about her eyes reminded him of the time she thought it such fun to be caught in Ravinia Park in the rain without an umbrella. So presently he tempered his frown, then put it away altogether, and his eyes twinkled, and he turned the corners of his mouth up instead of down. "'Oh, dear me!' he mocked, half in fun and half not. "'As the fellow says, we can't live with em and we can't live without em but she, who had been reading him like a book in plain print, asked, "'Come, tell Auntie your idea of a jolly Sunday in the park with your best girl, to sit her on a bench and make her listen while you mourn for the universe?' "'But what are we going to do about it?' he asked solemnly. "'That's what I want to know.' "'Do,' she responded, with a certain gay definiteness, "'do nothing.' "'You mean not see each other any more at all?' he asked desperately. "'I absolutely refuse.' "'No, silly, of course I don't mean that. We'll go on just as before. Friends, comrades, pals. When we love each other. When we've told each other we love each other?' "'Certainly. What's that got to do with it?' "'It would be the merest pretense,' he declared solemnly. Then let's begin the pretense now, and go up and throw a peanut at the elephant. Come along." She hooked her arm into his. Her levity of behavior undoubtedly got past him at times. "'Georgia,' he was once more on the verge of remonstrance, "'if you cared as you say you do, if you loved me as I—I—' She unhooked her arm, and now she was serious enough. "'Don't you understand?' she said, what I mean. We can't talk about that any more. You mean not at all? Precisely. But what if I can't conceal the most important thing in my whole life? What if I can't smirk and smile about it? What if I am not as good an actor as you? What if I can't pretend? What then? He was very, very fierce with her. Then I suppose I'll have to go home. They stood irresolute, facing each other, neither wishing to carry it too far. "'Not that that would be much fun. Oh, come, don't be silly. Let's go attack the elephant. What must be, must be, you know.' She paused to allow him time to yield with grieved dignity. Then she headed for the animal house. 
he trailed in silence about half a step behind her during the first hundred yards but finally sighed and surrendered and then fell into step and pretended during the rest of the afternoon with quite decent success so his education began and though he was by no means pliable material she managed being vastly the more expert to keep him pretending with hardly a lapse throughout the winter she found it more difficult however to keep herself pretending End of chapter 9